As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The race is on, and with the FIA's process of analysing the way the late safety car period was handled in the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix underway and continued question marks over Lewis Hamilton's future, the controversial end to the 2021 season remains the big talking point in 2022. But what can we expect to change? And is Hamilton retiring really a possibility? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, hello. How's life? You now completely clear of COVID? Yep, all good. Uh, The recovery is well and truly underway. I've discovered in the last few days that my... um, the combination of having COVID and then before that I had a bit of a chest infection, like having that back-to-back attack on my respiratory system has left me like... My cardio levels are absolutely zero at the moment so i i'm out of breath so crazy easily but other than that all good um looking forward to well i was going to say speaking about this topic for the hundredth time in the last sort of three weeks but at least we have some new stuff to get into today so it doesn't feel like we're treading over quite as much old ground as before yep it has certainly now moved on to mark hughes how are you you're you're down south this time Yes, I'm um, southwest. I'm from the northeast, so I'd like to just do the opposite and just see what it's like outside. Um, I'm fine. I'm COVID-free. Um, I, assuming I could make a visa application correctly, I, I could be eligible for the Australian Open um, because I've got no COVID and I'm fully vaccinated. But um, other than that, uh, yeah, everything is everything is good. Excellent and a good topical joke in there as well, which we like to see. Although I do have to say, if you're going to do the opposite of the northwest, wouldn't you have to be in the southeast, Kent or somewhere like that? That's my ends. No, I'm from the northeast. I live in the northwest. The opposite of the northeast is the southwest. Yes, yeah, that's true. Yeah, okay. I've uh, you've you've completely... you've spoiled it now. You've spoiled it. it. Doesn't matter. Just just cut it out. Someone needs to explain to Ed how mirrors work. <laughs> no, they're just magic, aren't they? 
I'm like a dog when I look in the mirror. I was like, who's that? <laughs> totally baffling. Anyway, well, it's good for me to, to to ruin things early on in the podcast rather than wait until a bit later. But let, let's crack into it, Scott. The FIA last month promised this process of analysing Abu Dhabi would happen. Now it's finally offered a little bit more detail about what that process might be. So what exactly is the scope of this and what changes have been hinted at already? Yeah, it's good to um, it's good that the FIA has finally broken its silence because it's uh, it, this is a really important process for Formula One. And it was becoming problematic that we, was, we still didn't have any details about it. I, I understand that this all kicked off just before Christmas. You have the Christmas break, the New Year as well. However important this is, I, just, I think realistically it was unreasonable to expect that there would be a huge amount of progress over that sort of week, two-week period. But we are, you know, getting into mid-January and it was starting to feel like, well, it's been a month now, so are we going to hear anything? Well, we have now. The governing body has broken its silence. Uh, the process has started. Um, new president Mohammed Ben Sulaim has kicked off a consultation with all teams on various issues, including the Abu Dhabi review. And we've got a little bit more meat on the bones as to how that process will play out. Um, in addition to talking to the key parties, which is going to include people like race director Michael Massey and the stewards, there's going to be um, a specific uh, point of discussion on the agenda of uh, an FAA meeting on, I think it's January the 19th. I'm blanking on the exact name of it but it's it's the is it the sporting advisory committee i think it's officially called but it's basically that body that discusses potential rule changes and then proposes potential rule changes to the f1 commission and the world motorsport council to then ratify it so that's going to be specifically on the use of the safety car once we get past this point there's going to be a shared discussion involving the drivers and then it'll all be finally presented all the findings of the report to the f1 commission in february so with, with final sign-off from the WMSC in March, but but we'll know before, because I think the WMSC meeting's like the, the Friday of the Bahrain Grand Prix, which obviously way too late to to, to do anything. But so, so we'll know before then. I don't think you take that as the, the date for which uh, the actual decisions and changes will be made and known. I think it will come a bit a bit sooner, uh, a bit sooner than that. So that's sort of broadly the process. As for what's going to change, well, it's quite a, it's quite a broad. Um, it's quite a broad topic because we don't have specifics on exactly what it is the FIA wants to learn. But I think it's just important to understand that uh, the specific areas that might change are certain elements of the regulations, which we can get into in a bit more detail in a bit. Um, things like how the safety car is used, how to ensure a green flag finish, stopping team bosses coming over the radio. Um, but then there's also the the big question of what's Massey's future. And also, as has emerged in the last few days, whether or not Nicholas Tombasis, who is the who is the, the the most senior technical person, I guess, within the FIA technical department, uh, what happens to him? Because he seems to have been roped into this with Mercedes putting pressure on the FIA, etc. So I think there's potential for, for quite a bit to change. It's just good to get the process started so we can have a bit more transparency. Yeah, it's a lot better than the FIA leaving things hanging because when they announced the fact there would be an analysis, they also declared it was a misunderstanding from the wider world that had tarnished the image of F1, which was a bit of a stupid thing to put out publicly because it did imply that, well, we were fine, but everyone failed to understand it. So I think at least the FIA is a little bit too late, realised 
that all they needed to do was just say, right, this process now is happening. This is the timeline. Here's roughly who's involved and here's broadly the scope of it. And then they can be allowed to to work through it. But it, it is interesting how broad it is because obviously the focus is on the last five or so laps in, in Abu Dhabi, the letting the lap cars pass or not, letting five of the eight lap cars pass, the question of the timing of the safety car coming in. So that's the the focus of it. But it is broader than that. Obviously, there have been problems or concerns among drivers with the way race control had dealt with things over quite a long period of time, actually. Certainly back into 2020, there were issues with that. I think about use of the safety car in Mugello, the way it was used there was being talked about. That's a slightly different use of the safety car, but it all comes under the same umbrella. And the fact you referenced there, this suggestion that perhaps Mercedes is pushing for Nicholas Tambasis to be, to be replaced, that shows, I think, where Mercedes are at in their mindset, they see what happened in Abu Dhabi as part of a wider thing as well. Not only is it a question of good governance and good running of Formula One, it's also a question of the fact they felt quite targeted by some of these random decisions and processes. Obviously, they they kind of blamed Tom Bassis for the rule changes that were done ostensibly to protect the tyres that they felt hurt the low-rate car. So there's a lot of threads feeding into this, although we should stress that what this process is not is anything about reviewing the result in Abu Dhabi. We have to stress that that ship has long since sailed. Mercedes withdrew the process. That will not change. It was never going to change. And actually, this is about far more than the outcome of the 2021 World Championship. It's about the way F1 runs itself. It's interesting because uh, we've had the first real hint of what they're going to do or what they could do on the FIA organisational side, which includes... I would assume the futures of uh, Massey and, and Tom Bassis because uh, Ben Soleim has asked Peter Bayer, who is the um, Secretary General for Sport, I think, for the FIA, and he's also head of the single-seater pillars, um, effectively. That was a change that's been implemented for 2022. So he, he's been empowered to propose uh, ways to review and optimise the organisation of the FIA F1 structure. And I can't read that without interpreting that to mean potential changes on in terms of personnel what what is the FIAF1 structure if not the race director and you know the previous um, head of technical matters for single seaters but it's interesting because this is it's a good opportunity actually for um uh, the FIA to really commit to a clean slate and Mark might be best placed to explain this but there's already been a little bit of changing behind the scenes before the Abu Dhabi controversy there was talk about um bringing all of the F1 technical matters into the remit of the F1, which is where this sort of restructure with Peter Bayer being in charge of everything overall came in. So there does seem to be potential here for the FAA to really get a proper reshuffle and refresh in the pipeline. Do you see any potential connection there, Mark, or are they sort of um, slightly disconnected? Yeah, I think they're disconnected. They just happened at the same time. The the restructure happened, um, well, it became... Um, clear to us uh, on on the morning of Abu Dhabi, actually. So it's uncon- it, it just uh, unconnected to what happened in the final laps of of that race. Um, so yes, Peter Byers will be in charge, and the respective chiefs of technical, uh, sporting, and commercial will all uh, report to him. And the the F one the the form technical group the 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 group that. Um, Came up with the new uh, concept of cars, the the, the Pat Simmons over overseen uh, group. That's now been now that these the, the, the formulas in place. That is, and then Pat's retiring later in the year, uh, in the summer, I believe. Uh, that group has now been moved within the FIA, and it will 
report to Peter Byers. So I don't think there's any, um, just the, the fact that uh, he is the one that's um, been responsible for this review. I don't think it, 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 it necessarily says that he's, you know, there's, there's Massey won't be there or Tom Bassas won't be there. They, they may not be, but I, I think that, that's unconnected with um, Peter Byers' position there. But yes, I think, as Ed said, the important thing to stress to the listeners is this is not going to change the outcome. That, that's just not happening. But there may be some regulation change or some personnel change, and um, there may be some um, agreement has been made um, behind behind the closed doors because uh, I think everybody's accepted that the outcome couldn't change even if the regulations were incorrectly applied. Um, but so there the, the may um, the, have been a compromise agreed to of some form and we'll uh, get to hear about it then. But there's, a, so there's definitely a political element because there's what's being done and there's what's being seen to be done so the FIA have to be seen to be doing something because it was such a controversial ending and then the, the FIA's um, the systems were called into question and, and uh, you know, the, the legitimacy of the outcome was called into question. So something has to be done when, when something like that happens. So at least that that is happening. But um, there's also the political element in the, in the, the, the effect of standoff between there's been a link made between Lewis not commenting whether he's going to continue next year and uh, what the the changes might be so effectively it's um being read as a standoff you know whereby lewis might or might not depending on what the outcome of this this is but i think um the fia the the way that it is uh presented what it's going to do and the timing of it whereby it's saying that this will be announced on the first day of practice of the first race of the season, it's effectively disentangling itself from any anything like that because it's saying, well, Lewis can do what he wants. That's up to him. But um, he's going to have to decide before we announce anything because uh, the practice will have started for the first race. So it's effectively got them out of that, publicly at least. It's, it's, it's decoupling the their actions from whatever Lewis decides. So it, it can't be seen as um, being influenced by, you know, or held a ransom by, by Lewis. It's been interpreted the other way by some people on, um, I, I saw some people on social media suggesting that this was actually the FIA trying to force Lewis's hand by having that, that yeah. late announcement, because it basically says, well, you know, you can play chicken all you like, but you're not going to know until then. But I do, I do genuinely believe that Mercedes and Hamilton, even if we don't know, officially yeah. and the public don't know i think mercedes and hamilton will know everything they need to know by the time this is presented to the or at the end of the f1 commission in february i think they'll yeah. know what they need to know but i agree with you it's a good way for the fia probably to just sort of make it be like well this is we're laying out very clearly when this is all going to happen anything else that happens around this do what you like yeah and that's what i mean by the there's what's happening and there's what's been seen to be happening and that's why it is good that the FIA is actually committed to a few things on the timelines. These processes do take some time and should be done properly, so nobody has any problem with, with that. And we should stress that Mercedes has said, Toto Wolff said this, that they will hold the FIA accountable in making sure they follow this process correctly. So that's what Mercedes' involvement is in this. But it, it's an interesting question as to what the, the list of things that need to change are, because there's a lot of focus on the personnel You've got to say probably Michael Massey's position is untenable given what happened. There were, subject to 
some other agreements and things coming out that they because there was this desire to make sure that races fi- finish under green flag conditions it does seem that Massey's position is untenable because the rules weren't followed as that as they were written you can just about argue the the lap cars one but the the one about the timing of the safety car coming in is unequivocal and I don't feel the stewards explanation for why that was fine held water I just think it was plainly incorrect that's an area of the regs that will be tidied up so there's there's there are multiple strands to to be tackled here and I think it would be naive for anyone to think the problem would be solved by say Michael Massey being removed because he's not the sole aspect of the problem because it's all about the sport versus entertainment stuff and there is a scenario where Michael Massey carries on because obviously he's not he's not an incompetent he's not an idiot he does have a decent amount of, of experience and he is being steered in terms of what he's trying to do by the way the FI the way F1 as a whole wants to do it so that's why it needs to be a proper three-dimensional thing not just a, oh it's your fault out you go do a kind of 1980s Ferrari style blame one person well, my my concern with it is what uh, what confidence we can have in the FIA to actually go as far as admitting fault where there there was actually fault. My, my concern is that we're going to have a compromise where, and it, it, as a compromise, it doesn't mean that there won't be anything good that comes from it. But I suspect there'll be a compromise where they they find a way to stick with and validate what happened in Abu Dhabi. They'll stand by Massey and the stewards by sticking to this interpretation of Article 15.3, I think, in the sporting regulations, which gives the race director overriding authority on many issues, including the use of the safety car, which is basically the justification for him doing what he wants <laughs> with the end of the safety car periods, for, for, for lack of a better phrase. I, I think what they'll do is they'll say that the rules allowed this to happen, but we recognise that it's clearly caused a problem. Again, they said before that we've all just misunderstood this, so therefore we're going to tighten up a few rules, change a few rules to make sure this can't happen again. And that way, what they'll do is they won't have to admit they actually did anything wrong, but they'll basically find a way to say, but we could do this better in the future. I don't think that is a full and thorough and transparent investigation really because I think what you really need to be getting into is just point blank was this handled incorrectly or not but I I just feel like it's a bit naive and unrealistic to actually expect the FAA to do this because organizations that investigate themselves they just tend to close ranks a little bit don't you do, do, do you two have complete confidence that the FAA will w- would be able to look at this and say yes we definitely got that wrong and then publicly admit that no, it's a damage limitation exercise. It's already gone wrong. And to actually go through it and say, yeah, this, this was actually wrong. It was the wrong call by the race director and the wrong call by the stewards um, on appeal afterwards. Um, would therefore, the next question is, so the result was invalid then. Uh, in the, you're then getting into disastrous PR for you know the, the, you can't change the outcome of the the, the world championship. That, that that's just it's done. It was it's, it went wrong and it went wrong in the way it did and it's now done. Um, so they 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 can only do a damage limitation. And yeah, I, I would expect it to be very much like what you've just outlined, Scott. It would be uh, yeah, it was actually technically correct under the uh, rules that were in place at the time, but we we recognise that it wasn't very satisfactory, so we're going to change these rules. 
it comes down to a question of, of being pragmatic in expectations, and Mercedes will be as well. Ultimately, whatever happens, an admission that they implemented it incorrectly wouldn't be wouldn't really change anything or have a huge effect. The number one thing that, that needs to happen is they ensure that the regs are correct, that the application of the regs is consistent and correct, that any kind of tension between administering Formula One races correctly and the pressure to ensure that there's a there's a good show, that tension needs to be to be solved and the balance struck correctly. Now, yes, other things fine, but the really key thing is, and this was clear from the moment the whole situation arose, is that for the long term the problem is is tackled. And I'm sure Mercedes will be pragmatic about it. What I think Mercedes mean when Toto Wolff says they want to hold the FIA to account is they want to make sure that there are changes. Toto Wolff's got a got a big thing. He's spoken about it before about governance and good practice. He talks about it in the business world. Obviously he's a might be called generically a businessman by trade if you if you like before he got involved in running racing teams. And he talks about there are very clear governance structures in place for the way businesses act and the way things are dealt with and he feels that, that it has been too fast and loose in Formula 1 he said this long before what happened in in Abu Dhabi but obviously Abu Dhabi has, has hyped up the whole uh, the whole, whole thing in the mind so I'm sure that, that Wolf and Mercedes their mindset is we want to see a, a good situation for the longer term so I, th- I think that's the that's the key thing do we ha- does anyone have any specifics in mind of what they what they want to see in terms of in terms of changes particularly in terms of the way of the way the regulations are framed? Uh, yeah, I think we need to have um, specifically, the, the, there was no the, there was no ambiguity about that particular regulation of, of lap cars before. It was either all the lap cars or none of the lap cars. There was well, no to, ambiguity. To, to correct, to, to, to be precise on it, it did say any lapped cars. Now, that's clearly yeah, intended that's, to mean that's clearly intended to mean all of them, but it doesn't necessarily, but just means if you are allowing lap cars through, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, so it's, it's an, it, at best, so it's an ambi- it's an ambiguous one, isn't it? It, it, means, <laughs> so. it, means, it means that once the process as, of lap cars unlapping themselves has gone through, if you are going to do that, and you might not necessarily be doing that, then this happens. The timing of the safety car coming in, absolutely, that's one hundred percent. Yeah, that it comes in the end of the lap after the lap yeah. cars go through. That's that's emphatic. There was no ambiguity there really before, but. The actions, what happened at Abu Dhabi has created that ambiguity. So that needs to be now cleared up um, in a, a much more specific way. And whether you do that through, you know, if, if within a certain percentage the the, the 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 incident happens within a certain percentage of the end of the race, then it, it, it has to be red flagged or whatever, whatever way you decide to tackle it. Um, it's now got to be put in words to remove that ambiguity. I think that's that's really um, that the, that's the most we can hope for, really. Yeah, I would uh, I would say that my preference or priority in regulate in terms of regulations from this would be a clear cut uh, rule for how you handle a late accident like that that causes a safety car. If it was. <laughs> It was completely understandable when we read in the stewards document that the evidence given by Massey was that it included this um, general agreement among the teams that where possible we have a green flag finish. And we saw that, didn't we, in Baku with that, was it the the two lap sprint at at the end, which at the time when it was first happening, I was thinking, this is ridiculous. I can't believe we're going again for a two lap race. And then actually when it happened, when 
it was we, we were getting close to the start. I was thinking, brilliant idea. Why haven't we done this before? Because this is so much better than finishing under caution. Um, so I like that, and I like that. I like the idea of in, trying to ensure a racing finish where possible. But I think that you you can't have that handled in an ad hoc way. So I think a regulation that says if the if there is a safety car in use with X number of laps remaining or within X percentage of the race distance remaining, then it becomes a red flag situation. Because what that does is, yes, you do have a situation still where, like in Abu Dhabi, the race leader, in this case Lewis, can be winning by a comfortable margin. And then the guy in second, in this case Max, gets a second chance and a last chance to really go for it. At least you eradicate, in theory, the the um the unfairness of guy in second is able to eliminate that gap and also change to fresh tires while the other the guy in front is completely vulnerable on an old old um use set now obviously there within the red flag restart situation there is the issue that has been raised before about being able to change tires uh, under that but i i think if you were able to change to a fresh set of the same compound or something like that. I, I don't think that's a problem. So I would like to see that rule that said that the guarantees if you're if you're if you're chasing a green flag finish, you have a fair and clear way of doing that. And I think X number of laps, X percentage of the race left, red flag, full restart, I think that's the fairest way to do it. Yeah, and you do need to have a formalized process because for example you made the Baku comparison. The difference in Baku was that the Verstappen crash when his tyre failed, he was on the straight, there was debris everywhere. That was absolutely a red flag. It had to be. The Latifi crash didn't require a red flag. And that that's the, the bar. It may have been pragmatic to have stopped the race when Latifi crashed to ensure that finish, but it actually wouldn't have been the correct decision by the way things are meant to be done. So you do need this formalisation to say if there, yeah, if there is the red flag or if there is a safety car, if there is a situation requiring the deployment of a full safety car in the last X laps, it's a red flag and a, and a restart, and then you can tackle all the things about tyres and fuel, so on and so forth, uh, however you want. But it needs to be formalised, because then this has always been about what the rules say and people's understanding of what the rules say, rather than what kind of could or should have been done if rules are a bit different. So the solution to this problem is in the way the rules are written. And tightened up. Just one thing I wanted to clarify on what you said there, because I I agree that it I I don't think it would have been the correct decision to red flag it in the circumstances. Do you think this is a good opportunity for the FAA to clarify what the requirement for a red flag is? Because in Jeddah we had the red flag because Massey said that they needed to check for barrier repairs, but I don't think barrier repairs were actually needed. So in that situation, it was also technically the incorrect decision to red flag it because there actually wasn't any barrier pairs required in Abu Dhabi my guess is that actually from the nature of the impact and what you could see very clearly it was obvious that there weren't any barrier repairs required therefore you didn't need a red flag to check it so I do appreciate that there is a key difference there but if you see what I mean the fundamental outcome isn't the same no barrier no barrier repairs were required during that that red flag but you needed it in Jeddah to, to check because the worry that what was was that, that something had happened. So I wonder if this is also a good opportunity just for the FIA to clarify a few things because while while I massively disagreed with that statement that people that, that suggested we'd all just misunderstood exactly what happened, I do think there are one or two things within it that would be be helpful for 
fans and everybody to understand things a little bit easier. So I just wonder if there's a little bit of a clarification exercise that the FIA can tag onto this with other sort of tangential stuff. Like we've talked about stuff that like like the um like the team boss is talking to the race director over the radio. That's not something that's a regulatory matter, is it? But it's something that is presumably going to be decided um between them, it will be something that is uh, agreed upon. It will be a technical thing, whether or not they actually have access to that radio channel. It would just be useful for all of these things to be settled clearly, even if they don't have a, a regulatory element. Yeah, there's a few things there that can be done. I'm not sure you can have an absolute set of parameters on red flags, but anything to do to anything you can do to to make it clearer and to make it more understandable is is worth doing. Although you wouldn't want to back yourself into a corner where you force a red flag when you know it's not necessary because it ticks all the boxes, should we say. I think the radio traffic thing is important. It's one of the few sensible things John Tott said about it at the end of last year was that perhaps they've been too permissive, and I think he's absolutely right there. The behaviour of Toto Wolf and Christian Horner over the radio was not very good. I don't think either of them perhaps would... Well, Wolf has, has kind of admitted that they went a bit too far, and that does need to be clamped down upon because the last thing you need when you're a race director and trying to sort things out is have people shrieking at you for no particular reason. So that definitely needs to be got under control. So there's quite a long list of, of areas that can be looked into. And it, what we say, it touches on so many uh, different elements. Well, Mark, let's get back to Lewis Hamilton. We have heard nothing from him since Abu Dhabi. We talked about the retirement suggestions. Obviously, Toto Wolff, was the one who originated these because he said in December Hamilton was disillusioned and he didn't guarantee that Hamilton would be coming back. So that shows that Mercedes want that idea out there. Given he's got a contract to the end of 2023, do you think this is really a possibility or is it all just part of the game that Mercedes and Hamilton are playing? Um, well, Ham Hamilton raised it actually in the, the post-race interview with Jensen, didn't he? When Jensen said, I know you'll be coming, going to be coming back stronger and you know, going out to get that championship, which you've just lost to get it back. And he said, oh, we'll see about that. And then moved on to something else. So it, it, it's it's not only Toto saying it. Um, we can't really know, can we? We can only make a judgment call from the outside. It looks ostensibly like he's making a point that he wants to highlight his question marks about the FIA's impartiality or fallibility, in which case you'd expect him to come back, uh, you know, once certain things have been met. But what if it's not that? We we don't know whether or not he, he truly is totally disenchanted. If if he feels it's not a dice, then why would he want to take part? That might actually be where he's coming from, a purely sort of internal viewpoint with no thought of how it's being perceived or by the outside world and no desire to get involved with whatever the changes might be, just pure disgust and unable to summon the motivation to take part because of that. So if that's the case, and I repeat, we've no idea whether it is or it's not, then no, he might well decide to walk away. So, um, yeah, it's impossible to make a, a, a call on it, really. Personally, I guess he will be back, but only he knows. I guess the big question is, if it is all part of a political game, and I think that's that's a big part of it, because I think Hamilton is the big weapon that Mercedes has got. Because people have said that Mercedes could threaten to pull out, but I don't think that works, because this team's only one-third owned by Mercedes. So if you're going to pull that threat, then the FI will say, well, the team's a commercial entity owned by several parties. They're not going to pull out because that's their business. That would just be killing their business. So that's not a great threat. But the Hamilton threat is a good one. Hamilton could have retired at the end of last season in normal circumstances. But were he to retire in anger and disillusionment of the way F1's run, that's a very, very different thing. And so that's a, a threat that I think carries, uh, that holds water. So 
if I had to guess, and this this is completely me speculating, guessing, I don't know what Lewis Hamilton thinks. I would imagine perhaps in the immediate aftermath, there would have been a period where he just said, oh, I don't want anything to do with this. But we've all had times where we thought we don't want anything any more to do with this and because things have gone wrong and you kind of get through that, don't you? But it'd be interesting if it's actually a question of he ideally wants to continue, but the value of a threat of him walking away or an implied threat, if you want to put it that way, is the, the willingness to go through with it. So he might be sat there thinking, I'll continue if I'm satisfied with this. And he'll probably have spoken to Toto Wolf about how they're going to play this and, and use the the leverage that Hamilton's got, given he's such a massive global star. So that'll be that'll be part of it. But he may well just be sat there thinking, well, I don't really want to have to walk away. I'd like to continue. But if I'm not satisfied, I'm willing to do it. And that's what makes the Hamilton leverage so potent, if that's the case. But he may still be thinking about it. So very interesting to, to know where he's where he's really at with, with this whole thing. I agree that it, it's that Mercedes element and being able to keep pressure on the FAA in some way. I, I, I believe that is definitely a factor. And I also agree with what you've both said, that we obviously can't speak for, for Lewis, so we, we can't say anything with certainty. But I think I mean, the fact that his issue after in the days after Abu Dhabi was so clearly directed at the FAA it's not like he went into hiding and there's just been a complete social recluse since then I know he hasn't said anything publicly but we know he obviously went and was knighted in the days afterwards he was at the Mercedes factory for Valtteri Bottas's send-off as well I'm sure he's been uh, doing preparation work behind the scenes that we've just not seen it um so it, it, it's the FAA that he's snubbed and it's not giving F1 any extra attention that he has done. Uh, so it's very clear to, to me where his issue is is directed. I don't think this is him being a, a, a sore loser. I think it's something that he has genuinely been been hurt by. This is obviously just my opinion. But it's worth remembering, you know, when, when Wolf spoke in December, he was talking in very, very strong terms. He said that he doesn't think that it's possible for Hamilton to get over what happened as a driver. And Wolf said that his responsibility was to do the utmost he could to help Hamilton overcome his imminent feelings after the race in order for him to return strong with a love of the sport and trust the decision-making of the sport. So Hamilton may well continue, but it, I think a big part of it will come down to whether he has faith in the in the system around him because whether Hamilton should continue or not is absolutely not our place to say. If he feels it's a fair playing field, hopefully he would carry on. But if his faith has faith has been irreversibly shaken, then it's sort of like what Mark was saying. What he might not want to, and he certainly shouldn't feel feel obligated to. Uh, my my the only other thing I would say on it is with what's been what I mentioned that he has. I don't think he's being a sore loser. I think his actions have been interpreted by some as that of a sore loser. He's had inevitable criticism. He's had advice from all of Twitter's fictional, hypothetical, elite sports people who say that he should just accept what happened and move on or come back stronger. But I think that underestimates the severity of what happened in Abu Dhabi. And I think it also misidentifies who has the responsibility to resolve this. It's not down to Hamilton to just say, yeah, okay, fine, is what it is. I'll, I'll crack on. Don't worry, guys. He doesn't, it's not down to him to turn the the other cheek you know it's not his responsibility to move on from this it's for the FIA to come out and do the right things and restore faith in what is clearly uh, 
a, a questionable system at the moment, whether it's a team or a driver. Look how many drivers after Abu Dhabi said they either didn't agree with what happened or they were confused by how it was handled. So I think it's completely legitimate. for If Lewis feels the way it seems like he feels, I think that is completely legitimate. And if he is considering not coming back, I, I don't think that is him throwing his toys out the pram. I think it's a an understandable reaction to, to what will feel like to him, a horrific injustice. What do they do if he walks? Yeah, well, that, that would be uh, problematic, to say the least. It's not a, There's not many uh, top-team F1 drivers sat idle, is, is there? Last time they lost a driver unexpectedly when Nico Rosberg in his mic drop retirement at the end of 2016. They had to spend £10 million to get Valtteri Bottas out of Williams. Yeah, and he was already sort of... Um an associated Mercedes driver, they've already made that move with 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 George. So, um, yeah, it it's 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 not it's not obvious, is it? There's, I guess, the low maintenance easy way would be just be to slot the existing Mercedes Formula E driver Nick De Vries in there, but a rookie in a top seat, I, I don't know, I don't think so. So, do you take an experienced out of contract guy like Hulkenberg, something like that? Or do you try and get somebody within with a contract and buy them out of that? You know, with an opposing team, Ocon suggests himself, doesn't he? But it's it's a very very difficult one to um, to, to to solve really if, if if that does become the case. Well, if I was in Toto Wolff's position and Lewis Hamilton would say, "Right, I'm done," then you would have to see if you can get any absolute top driver. So you think, well, can you get? Your Max Verstappen, Charles Leclerc, Lando Norris, probably not. They're not, they're not going to be very likely. So you then think, well, Valtteri Bottas is the the logical option because he knows the team. Slot him back in. But I also think that'd be quite hard to do because you'd want to do that for a year. And Valtteri Bottas, if Mercedes were going to come calling, would say, no, I want several years to even consider doing it, even if Alpha were willing to to sell him back to the team. So it does put them in a very awkward position. I suggested Fernando Alonso because obviously we had this. Um not debate, but we all had a little think about how we might want to handle it for a piece on the races website. And I suggested Alonso primarily because I don't think it's going to happen. So I was perhaps being a little bit sort of, um, uh, I don't know the best way to put it. I was perhaps flipping. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a little bit because I don't, I just don't know if Fernando is realistically on um, any kind of Mercedes, absolutely no way are we ever having him list. I, I, I don't know if that is, if, is the if, case. If Mercedes, if Mercedes lost Hamilton and they could get Fernando Alonso, I think they'd absolutely take him. They'd have to. I, I, I just think he, he'll obviously be on, I assume, a contract for 22 with Alpine with an option on someone else's, on someone's side for 23. Um but I wouldn't. I just wouldn't put it past Fernando to have something in his contract that gives him a get out if two, one of two or three teams comes calling. You know, so uh, go for it. I, I'd, I, he would be top of my list to, to 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 check out because I don't think he's as impossible to get as a Verstappen or a Leclerc, and I think he's the best option of those that have probably less. Um, I don't know the best way to put it. Uh, the less ironclad or less um, lucrative contracts. Um, he's he, he's someone that I think you could put in, and with his experience and his class, realistically expect him to do something special in 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 one year. And let's face it, one year a one year deal for Mercedes is worth a 
two, three, four, five, ten year deal with Alpine, isn't it? So um, at least Mercedes has a team boss. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We'll get onto that in a in a bit. But one thing you have to remember, though, Scott, in that Alonso scenario, we should say these are very hypothetical. It's, it's at the moment, it's a little bit of fun. Although, if my scenario where they, where Hamilton might walk away to make a point is a serious one, then I'm sure Mercedes will have a contingency plan in place. Uh, if Alonso were to suddenly end up in a Mercedes, it would absolutely guarantee that Alpine would have the best car in 2022 and Esteban Ocon would win the World Championship, wouldn't it? It's just the way things work when uh, Fernando Alonso's involved with his timing. So that, that would uh, that would be an interesting uh, uh, be an interesting impact. But yeah, a, a difficult scenario. And clearly Mercedes won't want that to happen, but they've got a good enough relationship, Toto Wolff and Lewis Hamilton, to, to play this the way they think they need to. And it just puts extra extra pressure and stresses the stakes that are here when it comes to the FIA analysis and, and the resulting changes. These things need to be taken seriously by the FIA. And I think FIA, the FIA and F1 itself, as in F1, the organisation, need to be wary of the, the risk of, of this of this potentially happening. Um, I just think the, the Alonso Mercedes thing would probably be a little bit of corporate resistance Going back to 2007, and um, the, the Mercedes share of the 100 million fine was 40 million. And I think um, at corporate level in Germany, uh, there might be a bit of resistance to uh, to an Alonso association. Yeah, so that's sort of uh, <laughs> that's sort of what I was hinting at, but I really wasn't sure. <laughs> I wasn't first of all, I wasn't entirely confident I had remembered that correctly, and second, I really wasn't sure if I, if I was comfortable saying it. <laughs> so thank you, Mark. <laughs> okay, well, you're off. You're off the hook. Well, it's, it's great, isn't it? It's because it's the um, even though Mercedes is only one third of the ownership, I'm sure they'll have various things in the deal that gives them right of veto and, and these sorts of things. So, an interesting scenario. But I think what we can see from the the potential alternatives for for Mercedes should Hamilton not be there, it's not a situation they really want to be in. So, it's not good for F1, FIA, or Mercedes for for that eventuality to arise. Could be quite good for George Russell though. That would probably be the uh, the, the main beneficiary, given he's now uh, preparing for his first full season with Mercedes. Well, Scott, before we end the podcast, there has been some other news in the F1 world that you alluded to, which is Alpine Executive Director Martian Budkowski leaving his position with immediate effect. Not unusual for there to be leadership changes at that team. Given he was a de facto team principal, that means it's looking for its fourth team boss since 2016. So what do we know about what's going on at Endstone? Uh, well, they've said very little officially. Um, it's the end of a it's the end of a stint that was full sh- a couple of months short of four years, I think. He was... Um, even though he was only there for um, whatever it would have been, so three full seasons, he was still comfortably the most experienced of an immature leadership team. And I mean immature just in terms of how long it's been around rather than their um, respective personalities or, or whatever, anything like that. Because as executive director, he was alongside Davide Brivio as racing director and then Lauren Rossi was obviously Alpine CEO. And this this never looked like a sustainable long-term structure to me. It always looked like something that was weirdly cobbled together in the aftermath of Cyril Abitable's exit, which was almost exactly a year ago now. Um, so maybe this is the beginning of the end of that kind of period of n- nonsense, for lack of a better word. Uh, or, or maybe it's the start of an all-new cycle of this team, putting someone in charge and then binning them off two or three years later. So we've seen so much transition from this team on all sides. Obviously, since Rossi's come in as CEO, Remy Taffan, the longtime engine chief, left last summer. We've had 
uh, various shakeups on the aero side, and we've had this weird three-person leadership team in place for one year, and it hasn't survived the first winter. So I think it's clear that this team is one that's um, st- still desperately trying to find the best way forward for the organisation. Um, and it is a bit worrying. The, the, I guess the only glimmer of hope is that I think the longer last year went on, the more Rossi did seem to be quite clued up on the fact that the team needed changes. I, I spoke to him at length in November and he talked about the fact that it had been difficult to get that three-person leadership team to work properly. He talked about the fact that the, the team was a bit too conservative in, in its mentality on the engine and the chassis side in terms of development. And it was clear that there were lots of changes made in the Budkowski in Budkowski's tenure um, that hadn't actually reaped any kind of short-term gains, really. I didn't see any evidence that the various aero demons that have dogged that team for a few years now were really being ended. So I think I'm not really surprised. I think the only surprise really is that given the amount of rumours around Brivio's future and being linked with a move back to MotoGP, that Budkowski's gone before Brivio's gone. That that might be the only, and I, I don't mean that flippantly, like it did seem like Brivio was heading for the exit door. Maybe, maybe he still is, but ultimately, Budkowski, if the team seemed to have been underperforming, Rossi told me in November last year that if he felt the team was falling short of where it needed to be on the roadmap that he set out, he would change the structure. And it seems Budkowski is the first victim of that, assuming, of course, that it's Rossi's decision that Budkowski's gone, not um, Budkowski's decision to, to walk out the door. Who knows? But he was obviously the de facto team boss. And I think, as you discovered, Ed, styled himself as the team principal as well. So it's a, it's, it is a major loss for Alpine. Yeah, he, he liked to reference the fact that he, because every team does have to have a team principal license, as it's called. So even if there isn't someone whose job title is formally team principal, there is somebody who has that underlying status. And that and that was what Budkowski had. It's an interesting one at Alpine because there are problems there. There have been a lot of process changes and communication changes in recent times. There's a bit of a difference of opinion, I think. Now. I think, from what I understand, Bukowski felt the team wasn't good at adapting to these changes. But there's some feelings on the shop floor that some of these changes were not the right ones and they were causing problems in terms of getting things getting things done and that sometimes you can take steps out of a process to streamline it, but those steps exist for a reason and actually can have a net negative. So yeah, interesting to see what that what that changes at Alpine. But certainly, Mark, we spoke on the last podcast about Omar Safnauer leaving Aston Martin. He'd been linked to an Alpine move. He's a very elegant replacement isn't he for for Budkowski given his uh his track record yeah I would fit straight in and if we're to believe the the rumors that were circulating probably well back in August sometime um the deal's already done so uh yeah he's very experienced uh he's very capable he's got a good grounding he's both engineering and uh team principal background and would be a very safe pair of hands and um I would yes, I would expect him to be there in in the team principal role next year. Well, of course, we have to remember that these things can be quite complicated. Safnauer said late last year that he had a long term deal with Aston Martin, and that was the case. But he didn't say at what end of a long term deal he was at. 
I understand that probably his contract ended at the end of 2021, so that made him available. But then when you have F1 contracts, it's not just your contract ends and you're free. There's often non-compete clauses and that kind of thing that stop you immediately working for another team. So there'll probably been some stuff going on behind the scenes, which explains why he had to do his unconvincing denials. But I think Safnau would be a very, very good piece of recruitment from Alpine and would just be the, the logical choice there. But it, it's clear there's there's things at Alpine that aren't quite right. There's lots of good ingredients there. There's lots of good people. They've at times kind of made good progress, but it's the sort of progress is always one step forward, one step back with them, which is why they've been bouncing around F1's midfield for, for quite a few years now. So it is a, a big deal for Alpine to get this decision right and to make sure that Rossi structures things correctly and that this team actually fulfills its potential because it's a works team it needs to be at the front and with the cost cap coming in the Concord agreement changing the 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 way the the money's divided to make it a little bit more equitable Alpine is kind of out of excuses now isn't it certainly out of excuses on Rossi's timeline which is to be fighting and getting consistent podiums and always at the front in 2024. Yeah I think uh, I think this is now a big test of um, Ross's capability as CEO to actually steer the team overall and, and get the right structure in place. He came in as part of what I said was a compromise solution to a Bitterpool's exit. Uh, exactly what part he played in in that, I, I just don't know the extent of. But all I can say is that I felt that what he was identifying as the year went on last year did seem consistent with some of the underlying issues we'd seen at at Alpine. So I think if there is any kind of optimism for fans of the team or people who want to see that team stop underperforming and finally become worth the, the, you know, the value of its individual parts or greater than some of its parts at the moment, I think it's less than that. I, I do think Rossi, he at least sounds more convincing than he did at the start of the year in terms of whether he could be the right person to lead this. He wanted to get to the end of the season before committing to any changes. Um, but he said that he wanted to, ha- he said that by waiting until the end of the year, he'd have a full view of where he needed to add muscles to the team. And I wonder if he has decided that that is in Enstone senior management, but you're right that it is absolutely crucial because Rossi's stepping in temporarily and taking charge of the team management while the replacement for Bukowski is is, is either identified or finalised and installed. He did seem to realise last year that the team's leadership was lacking. So now defining a better structure is absolutely key to make sure that Renault's Works F1 programme stops under-delivering. But if he doesn't get this right, I think Alpine will be at risk of being undermined by a managerial merry-go-round. Well, we still don't know what the future holds for the latest person to fall off that particular merry-go-round, but given his two decades in F1 with teams like Alpine, Ferrari and Mercedes, doubtless Budkowski will be of interest to some other organisations. What we do know is he's definitely not going to Aston Martin, as was rumoured, with former head of BMW Motorsport Mike Crack announced as Safnauer's successor as team principal. So what can you tell us about him, Scott? Well, I won't dwell too long on his CV because that's obviously quite easy for people to look up. What matters most for Aston Martin is what this person is going to be like as a team boss. And I actually get the feeling that Crack could be a really shrewd appointment, almost in the vein of McLaren signing Andreas Seidel. And 
because they come from outside F1 and they both come from major German manufacturers, it's going to be super easy for comparisons to be made between these two. It's inevitable. And this could be considered Exhibit A. But it isn't just a case of seeing all recruits from high-level programs outside F1 as the same. The competency of these individuals is what matters. You know, Seidel's been an excellent addition at McLaren because he's very capable. He's got a skill set well suited to running an F1 team and McLaren has a structure that allows him to thrive. He's not just been a great appointment because he worked at Porsche before. So by the same logic, Crack's not going to be a great Aston Martin team principal just because of the surface level similarity of F1 team hires chief from a massive German manufacturer. What's so encouraging for Aston Martin is that those who have worked with Crack give a really clear impression of a person who has already made the transition from being an immensely capable race engineer to someone who thrives in a leadership role. I've already heard very, very positive testimony from people who have worked with him from a from a driver's side and also from a, a team management side as well. He's been described as calm, studious, straightforward. He appears to pass the character test with flying colours. It's quite important that he's had this long BMW stint and even that shorter time at Porsche, but mainly the l last few years at BMW, which have given him first-hand experience of being part of a, an important, challenging program from an engineering perspective and a management one. And that's very important because it's put him at the heart of major decision-making. It's put him at the forefront of driver matters in Formula E and GT racing. He, he really does have a massive blend of experience and expertise. Martin Whitmarsh called him exactly the right kind of dynamic and modern team principal that Aston Martin's going to need. And there is every reason to believe that. He has extensive experience as a race engineer. He's got his own background in, in karting as a driver at a decent level. So he understands and respects the human and technical needs within a team. As long as it goes well in terms of him being able to run the team the way he wants to, and that means minimal interference from a chairman like Lawrence Stroll, who has such grand ambitions and, and wants everything done yesterday, he could absolutely be the right man for the job. If Aston Martin handled this correctly, I think they might have played a blinder here because there's a genuine sense that this man might tick the very rare boxes of being technically savvy, being well-versed in the demands of senior management positions in motorsport, and also being a good man-manager who leads by example. Yeah, on paper, it looks like a very shrewd appointment from Aston Martin. So let's see how he gets on in the coming season for that very upwardly mobile team. Well, thanks very much to Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen for all the latest from the world of F1. As there's always plenty to read there. If you'd like something else to listen to, check out our sister podcasts, including Bring Back V10s with the latest episode of that, delving into the 2001 Spanish Grand Prix and Mika Hakkinen's last lap heartbreak. And if video's your thing, head to our YouTube channel. So thanks for listening and we'll be back soon with everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. <laughs>